I was thinking as you guys were singing your praises to God, what if you woke up one morning and you felt a little odd or different and you walked out into the breakfast room or your kitchen or wherever it is and one of your kids or someone you live with or someone you were staying with had been sick and you just casually said, you know, I'm really praying that the Lord would make you well. And like magic, as suddenly as you said it, that person was instantaneously healed. And you realized immediately this may be a different day. Then you went on about your day. Maybe you went to work. Maybe you went off to the grocery store or wherever and you thought you'd revisit that moment. Maybe it was coincidence and you tried it again. You tried it. You met someone you knew in the store and they said that they were uh, praying for someone who was sick and you said, well, you know, I pray and I ask the Lord that they would be healed. And the next thing you know, that person immediately got a call from the person in question. And at that very moment, they were healed. And all of a sudden, you began to know this is really going to be a different day. And you began to test it further throughout the day. And every time you prayed for someone to be sick or for someone to be made well who was sick, they were instantaneously healed. I can tell you that in short order, very, very soon, you would be a very, very busy person. And if you did not have a special measure of grace, what had seemed to be to you initially the most special of gifts could almost become to you something like a curse because you would find yourself overwhelmed with need. You would find yourself pressed in upon as Jesus was. And remember, we've already read text with the lepers, with the sick, uh, the centurion's servant, those who were demonized. And what does the text say? He healed them all. I mean, think of it. Everywhere you went, every, every circumstance in which you were, you'd probably pretty soon be ensconced in your own home or wherever it was you were. You'd probably soon be tied to your home because you, the crowds of the downtrodden and the needy and the sick would be, and the news media and any and everything that you could possibly imagine. If one person on this earth truly had the gift to be able to heal disease, what would that look like? It would be in our society where word travels even quicker than it did in this ancient day. Imagine how quickly you would be almost suffocated by need. So, with that as the backdrop, it's not really hard to imagine the crowds that pressed in on Jesus. You know, as I've told you many times, as his life progressed and he got closer and closer to the cross and the cost of knowing him and being near him became higher and higher and men did not want to pay that price that everyone left him, even those in his most intimate inner circle departed from him and when he went up the hill carrying his own cross he went alone 
but it is not difficult to imagine why the crowds gathered so close to him that he was forced to get into a boat and push out a little ways from the, from the shore. You can even begin to see why the multitude was, if you look at the four Gospels, the multitude is a main character in the story. The multitude, when they have the possibility to, if they're sick, to be healed or in their natural state to see a sign, they will do almost anything. Remember Zacchaeus? Remember how desperate Zacchaeus was? And so you, you see that it is not difficult to explain the presence of the multitude, the cause of the crowd. But what does Jesus say to the people in John 4? He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And so the people gathered to see signs. They gathered to see wonders. And those who were sick came to be healed. And so the crowd gathered the cause of the crowd in verses 1 through 3 the cause of the crowd and we'll talk in a little bit more about we'll talk in a little bit more about the fact that it was not just the signs and the wonders and the healings but that that was a major motivation for the crowd to follow Jesus we'll talk in short order about the eloquence of Jesus speech and what kind of person he was, and how attractive, naturally, humanly speaking, how attractive he was. In fact, if you think about verses 3 through 9, the one thing that emerges as far as I'm concerned, the first impression concerning the story of the sower is the beauty of the story of the sower, and how elegant and simple and refined and compelling is this story. Now we have the benefit of Jesus' own explanation and thousands of years of uh, men much wiser than myself grappling with even Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sore to somewhat sort out what he meant in terms of spiritual communication by telling that story, right? Those people who first heard that story did not have all of that history. They did not have the explanation of Christ, and they did not know. And I don't think you would have known either what the story of the sto what the story of the sower was trying to communicate. But you would have been arrested, and compelled, and impressed if you were listening. You would have been impressed by the eloquence and the symmetry and the simplicity of the story. And this is what kind of person Jesus was. He gave himself in totality to the people that God sent him to. He did not hold himself back at all. He touched everyone. He healed everyone. He prayed everyone, prayed for everyone. He ministered to everyone. He poured himself out to the uttermost ever before he walked up that hill. And not only that, he was compelling of speech. He was attractive. He, and I'm not talking about physically attractive. He was, he was magnetic in, sen in the sense of that you could not deny that he was different, that there was something about him, that a prophet had come to Israel. And the multitudes through the signs that were given to him concerning a prophet and the eloquence of his speech and the character of his person, it became evident that it was going to be a different day. 
You know, the more I thought about that story that I opened up our time together with, I'm not sure. I think I would want that gift for about five minutes. Maybe an hour. Maybe a day. But think of it. Think of how many sick people you know and how many sick people those that you know know and those that they know that they know about. And how quickly that wildfire of your gift would spread. News about you would quickly get around and you would be inundated with labor. And you would be inundated. And not to mention there's the implication you would be inundated with responsibility. And not to mention that it seems in Isaiah 53 that there is some mysterious measure in which Jesus, when he healed someone, he actually took on the pain and the consequences of that disease. He bore our infirmities, Isaiah says. There's something about the way he poured himself out that it wasn't without cost and just like a, a, a magic wand and he waved it and, and the person was healed. There was some kind of personal investment made to make each and every one of those individuals well after about two days of that you might be worn out I know that when I step down from this pulpit on a weekly basis and I find myself alone finally in the mid-afternoon sometimes it's almost more than I can bear just to stay on my feet I can't imagine such spiritual gravity and such spiritual responsibility that any and everyone that I wanted to be made perfectly well was made perfectly well. So he did have that ability. That was a major source and cause of the crowd. He did possess this prophetically eloquent manner of speech and living. In fact, John seven forty six, the officers answered and said this, no one. Why did, you, why did you go out to him? Why are you listening to him? What is it about him? No one, they said, ever spoke like this. No one ever spoke like this. And then you get into the heart of the chapter itself, and I think as far as this section of biblical literature in regard to Matthew's description of the life of the king, I think you get into sort of the heart of the section of Scripture which reaches back to the crowd coming and reaches forward to the things that would follow after us, after it in terms of the parables that he would tell. He's going to come to something as he usually does which raises its beautiful head against the ugly truth of man's depravity. And that's the third point. So we've covered verses 1 through 3, the cause of the crowd, verses 3 through 9, the beauty of the story of the sower. And then in verses 10 through 17, and this is kind of maybe where you want to tune in because it's going to get you to thinking. It's probably going to raise more questions than it answers, but that's just the way Jesus goes about his business. And that is this, the hard truth of hardness. The hard truth of of hardness. This section of scripture makes it clear that it is intentional on the part of God to harden the heart of some and soften the heart of others. It's in inexplicable language. And you could say, well, the, the, the cause of these people's sin is the cause of their hardness, and it's consequential. It's their sin first, and God's hardening their heart second. I would say to you and suggest to you that it is consequential of Adam's hardening of his heart. 
and the consequences of his that his progeny, us, these people, those who came before and those who would come after would experience. Listen, listen again. We read this during our scripture reading, but listen to these words in this passage of scripture and tell me how they can say anything other than what they say. All right? Listen carefully. They wanted to know why he was using parables. That was the question. Listen to this. It was evident to the disciples that the people would not understand the parables. He didn't, they didn't know really anything about, spiritually speaking, that God was hardening a heart or not hardening a heart or doing whatever. They just realized that simply presenting them this parable would not really solve any intellectual and spiritual problems that they might have. The disciples were completely aware of that, so they came to Jesus and says, Jesus, as they would usually do, question his method, question his means, question his character. Why are you using parables? And he doesn't say uh, anything to placate their ignorance or their darkness. He says this, You have been enabled to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. They have not. <laughs> there's no way around that. And there's no, just in case you're looking at your own Bible or another translation, it's as unambiguous in every translation as it is in mine. You have been given these things. To them it has not been given, one translation says. To the one who truly has anything, truly has anything, more will be given. To the one who has not, listen to what he says, even what he has will be taken away from him. The person sitting there grappling with the parable of the sower but is continually hardening his heart and wanting that parable to mean something that it doesn't so that they might preserve a measure of self-assurance and self-preservation and whatever the case may be, and it doesn't ever intend or is it, it's never going to mean what they want it to mean. So even in the vagueness of the light barely starting to come on in their head, what they have when they begin to grapple with it, grapple with it selfishly, even what they have, it dissipates and darkens. And this is God's work. This is God's work. And this always brings us to the reality that there are parts of God's justice and parts of God's goodness and parts of God's working that remain mysterious and unattainable to us. On a natural level to us, there is no way that this can appear to be fair. There is no way that this can appear to be right. There's no natural ladder that you can climb up and make this make sense to your ethic. It never will. It's humbling. It's humbling that God does what He does when He wants to do it. And He doesn't ask our permission or approval of it. It's a matter of mercy that anyone knows Him. Jesus says to the disciples, It has been given to you. What an amazing surprise that it would be given to anyone concerning considering the depravity and sin of Adam and the constant affirmation and exponential addition of sin by all of Adam's progeny. Why would any of us, why would one single one of us be a recipient of mercy considering what we are and what we've done? 
But make no mistake about it, the Scriptures clearly and confidently assert that all of these things, both hardening and softening, both damnation and salvation, are a manner of God's person are a matter of God's personal will. And God is love. And God is just. And God is fair and God is good. But there are, and especially in the case of and consideration of this particular doctrine, you can wrestle with this matter, uh, this issue from now until the cows come home. And if you do figure it out, you're going to be the first one. Because it, we don't have that. Uh, this is God. We don't have that understanding. This is God calling on us in the most central of sovereign doctrines to trust him. Just to trust him. But to reckon with the consistency of what he says in the parable of the sower, that there's only one good seed in the one, or there's only one good result in the group. There's four possibilities, and only one of them results in life. Yes, we have to grapple with that. Yes, it is confusing to the natural mind and somewhat frustrating and People have thrown up their arms in exasperation. I think you're missing the point when you throw up your arms in exasperation. It causes me to fall down on my face and worship God that there could be something this confusing to me that I know in my heart of hearts is good and right and just and fair because the God I serve and the God who saved me from my sins and the God who calls me to overcome the world by the power of his testimony is good and I know that by word and by testimony and by experience and so I don't have to wonder about whether God is good and whether or not this doctrine is good. I am called upon to trust him in this doctrine and to trust him in my life that he is good that he is conforming me into the image of Christ and that he is working out everything to, 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 for my good and his glory and I don't, have to, I don't have to question that for a minute and I am more assured by that reality in the face of doctrines like this they don't cause me to diminish my faith in God they cause me to increase in my faith toward God does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Answer that question. It's rhetorical. It's rhetorical, but go ahead and answer it. Go, go ahead and answer it. Does not the potter have the right to make one? That's in other words, he made a chamber pot and he made a beautiful piece of poetry or, or uh, pottery or whatever the case may be. Not poetry, pottery. Does not the person who possesses the power to do both have the right to do both? Does not the potter have right over the clay to make from one lump a vessel of honor and from another a vessel of dishonor? I say yes with Paul. What if God wanting to show... Listen, here's purpose here. What if God wanting to show his wrath and make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, I just want to ask you again, how can you, how can you make that say anything else? Pharaoh, follow this, follow this carefully. Pharaoh was prepared from before the foundation of the world to suffer destruction. That's a hard truth. The question is, does it compel you to worship and wonder and mystery, or does it compel you to frustration and anger and further rebellion? 
That's the question. It's not whether or not it's true. It's not whether or not. Every page of Scripture asserts the sovereign right of God over His creation. I am broken by my own sin and the sin of the world and the fate of those like those in these parables who are gathered up into a pile and burned. I am broken by the reality that there's going to be loud cries and gnashing of teeth in hell. But I'm not deluded into thinking that's some kind of myth or some kind of story to really scare us. That's why, that's why there's so much stuff about hell in Jesus' teaching. Because he knows if he scares us enough, we'll, even, though, even though hell's not real, this is not going to happen. If we talk enough about hell, it'll scare them enough to repent and follow me. That's not why it's there. It's there because hell is there. It's there because that is the fate of those who do not repent and believe the gospel. It is the fate of those who are prepared for destruction. And I, I, can't, I can't do anything at that point but say, repent. Repent. Turn your life around. Turn away from your sin and turn to God. And perhaps, perhaps, perhaps you might find mercy. And if you do repent and turn, you will find mercy if that repentance is a gift from God and a true and genuine grace in your life from Him. Why did He endure and follow that? This is, and again, just like Jesus' healing, God's endurance of the long suffering, God's long suffering over the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction is not without personal cost. He, he, God endures the, the life and the fate of the wicked with great long-suffering, agony, pain, difficulty, hardship of, of heart. Why? So that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. But Isaiah was very bold and said, I wish I would... Isaiah is very bold and says, I was... Listen now, I want you to really focus on these words I was found by those who did not seek me no one seeks God so how could salvation be anything else but the initiative of God in the life of those vessels of mercy because you're born with the nature, there's that word again, you're born with the nature not to seek God and you won't seek God because you don't have the nature to seek God. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me, but to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor. That's strong words. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. But David says, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Romans 11, now if their fall, Israel, is riches for the world and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he, listen, he 
will turn ungodliness away from Jacob. In the future, when God saves every single Jew, in the future, it is not because they will have suddenly figured it out and it all makes sense to them now and they turn to God of their own volition. He will turn ungodliness away from Jacob. There's so much more to say about that, but I want you to realize that in the context of the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the pearl, the parable of the treasure, the parable of the mustard seed, in those parables, the whole point is the inability of the crowd to understand anything that is said in terms of spiritual value. So if you understand, how blessed are you? If you see, how blessed are your eyes? If you truly have a comprehension that it is God who regenerated your heart and turned you from wickedness, how blessed are you? If you are blessed enough not to think that you had anything whatsoever to do with your salvation, how blessed are you? And if you are sitting here this morning and you are lost and you do not know him, but you do know that if you do receive the gift of regeneration, it is going to be because God brings you to life and God opens your eyes, even in your lost state, at that point and at that juncture, how blessed are you? That you will not receive a counterfeit, that you will not make something up, that you will not think that some incantation and the words of your own mouth bring you into salvation. How blessed are you? How blessed are you? In fact, I would say that you are experiencing what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 7 as the sanctification of some believer in your life, the sanctification benefit of some believer in your life because you are truly close to and have heard the true gospel of God that unless you die, you cannot live, that unless you yield all, you can't have anything, that unless you are, unless you are thoroughly cleansed, you are dirty. Unless you are made perfectly righteous in your heart, you are completely unrighteous. That's the gospel. Blessed are you if you have heard it. More blessed are you if you have understood it. The point of his explanation, and it's so obvious in verses 18 through 23, the point of his explanation is that the soil and the seed must match. If the seed doesn't match the soil, and if the seed doesn't find the right soil, it doesn't matter what the quality of the seed is because the quality of the seed is consistent in each story, right? In each example. The seed is the seed, and the seed is the Word of God. And the Word of God bears fruit for condemnation in some places where it lands, and it bears fruit for judgment in other places where it lands. So really, in one sense, and I might... I'm hesitant to say this because it sends me down a rabbit trail. But in one sense, the seed of the Word of God always matches the soil that it finds. The, when the seed finds the rocky soil and it springs up quickly because it doesn't have a root, that seed matches that soil. It matches it. It, it, it accomplishes the purpose that a seed is intended to accomplish. A seed is not intended to bear fruit in rocky soil. Right? A seed is not intended to bear fruit when thorns are growing up around it and choking it. That's not what the seed is going to produce. It's going to produce death. Right? Even in the devil's mouth who snatches it away, it produces death. His death. His condemnation. 
Now, he has no hope of repentance. You do. Because even though whether or not before the foundation of the world you were prepared for destruction or mercy, you know not unless you are born again and redeemed and you love Christ and you love his word and you love his people and you love to obey his word, unless that's your case, unless that's your situation, you don't know what your fate is. But still, the call of Scripture is to all men everywhere to repent. So we issue that call. Repent. 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 Believe. Believe. This is true. Believe. Your soul is on the line. Believe that if you do not repent, you will prove to be the seed or the soil that matched the seed of destruction. And you will spend your eternal future weeping and gnashing your teeth. The soil and the seed much must match. God's sovereignty explains the parable of the sower. Acts 13, 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, this is on up in Luke's writing in Acts. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. Now look, I want you to follow this. This is kind of like what could happen in this room right now. Everybody in this room could be glad and glorify the word of the Lord. Every, nobody's disqualified from being able... There is a natural level upon which we can all say, no one ever spoke like Jesus. No one ever spoke like this. But what does the rest of the verse say? When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, there was a distinct crowd in the crowd that believed. Not everybody. Not everybody. Not everybody. What kind of soil did the seed of the Word of God find when it hit your heart? Good soil, prepared soil, fruitful soil, or rocky soil, or poisoned soil that produces thorns? Self-poisoned soil. So there's the explanation in, with no depth whatsoever, almost like the rocky soil in the explanation. Verses 18 through 23, the soil and the seed must match. Verses 24 through 30, this is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And this parable explains to the godly how to live with fakes. Living with the fake. Living with the fake. Jesus illustrates that within every dispensation, within the kingdom of God and among the people of God, there will always be tares. You know, I mean, really it's a beautiful illustration because no matter how much you search out what a tear is, you'll find what you think you're looking for. It's a weed that looks almost exactly like a stalk of wheat. Look it up. Google it on your images. You'll see that you could imagine how... A, a, a tear and a wheat side by side if they were the only two plants there you could see the difference but in a multitude and in a field if you looked out upon it you might not be able to see it until you look a second time they look very much alike they look very very much alike and here's one other point about the enemy sowing tears among the wheat weeds among the real stalks of grain is that 
a farmer would have taken a special care to plant his wheat in a meticulous and orderly manner, and he would have left a, enough space between rows to give the wheat an opportunity to root and grow and breathe and do everything that it needs to do. But when the enemy sows the tares, he's indiscriminate, and he sows them in upon every available piece of ground. And so it's most likely that the tares are going to outnumber the wheat. Right? And has not that been the case throughout church history? And should we and ought we not to pray that it not be the case here? Living with the fake. Paul says to Timothy, some men's sins are evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. And this does not discount or dispense with the principle that when you come across a seed and caring for the wheat, that you don't pull the, when you come across a weed and caring for the wheat, that you don't pull the weed out. But you can't pull them all out because if you go in there and you try to surfacely judge where the wheat and the tares are and which one are which, you're going to injure the wheat in the removal of the tares. So it's an individual, particular, specific kind of thing that when you bump into it, you deal with it in the biblically prescribed manner. Otherwise, if you don't bump into it, you let those two grow together. And you trust the sovereignty of God that He's even working the tares out for the, for the field of God. He's even working the tares out for the good and glory of His people. Somehow, in some way, I think that it's possible that that wheat that has to survive among those tares, there's probably a special kind of strength that that stalk of wheat experiences because it had to fight for every piece of good soil to root. Living with the fake. It's just a reality. It's just a reality. Verses 31 through 35. The parable of the mustard seed. This parable, I think, illustrates the power, at least in part. I'm all over P words lately, by the way. This parable, parable part, this parable illustrates the power and promise of the word. The mustard seed represents the power of the word. Uh, excuse me, did I say the, the, this verses 31 through 35 illustrate the power and promise of the word. The power and promise of the word. Did you get that? The power and promise of the word. The power of the word is illustrated in the mustard seed that inside and encapsulated in that tiny and small seed which is the word of God is the power of God himself and that's shown that when that seed finds its right ground it grows up and becomes something unexpected it grows up and becomes something exponentially more impressive than you thought it could possibly be when you planted that little teeny tiny mustard seed and there and all of a sudden the birds are nesting in the shade of its branches and security of its branches. It's a powerful seed. How powerful is it? We've quoted this verse recently, but I want to document it for the record. 1 John 3, 9, who, listen to these words. How can, okay, here we are back to our hermeneutics. How can these words mean anything else but what they mean? Okay, listen, you listening? Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of 
God. And I should have quoted the complimentary verse to that, which Paul says what? Now, because of this principle and because of this reality and because of this truth in my life, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. And here is the mysterious dichotomy of the hybrid person who's walking around as a dead person and as a living person, as a living person and as a dead person, as a righteous person and as a sinner and as the spirit and as the flesh because that's the meantime where the next parable takes over where the leaven has gone into the lump of flour and there is a point at which the leaven hasn't touched any of the flour but where it was inserted. But if you give it time in the right temperature, I promise you it will cause the whole lump to rise. That's the promise. That's the promise of the word. But inside of that lump of dough, there is an incorruptible seed that cannot sin. Because what? It is Christ in you. Do you sin? Yes, you do. And is it you? Yes, it is. And are you responsible for it? Yes. And did Christ have to pay for it and die for it? Yes. But what was that purchase of? It was of a new life and a new order of humanity and a new creation. And that seed cannot sin. Boy, if you didn't have the scriptures to hold on to preaching that, you'd feel like an Eskimo on an Alaskan lake late spring, right? Because it sounds extremely precarious. (laughs) I am confident in that because the Word of God assures me that Christ in me is... Listen to this. Listen to this statement. Christ in me is as perfect as Christ on the throne in heaven. Do you think because Christ came into your heart and gave you life that He's imperfect because He's in you? That's arrogant. That's arrogant. He, he's bigger than you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Christ doesn't change and become partly sinful just because he lives in you. Now does it make sense? I hope. I pray. Paul said to the Philippians, being confident of this very thing. Here's the leaven. Here's the principle of the leaven, the yeast explained in principle. Being confident of this very thing. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. So the question is not is the leaven going to do its job and raise the lump of dough. What's the question? Are you unleavened bread? By the way, this is the only, I think the only place in scripture where leaven is used as a positive example almost always leaven is used to illustrate sin because it better illustrates it because of how hungry and aggressive sin is but make no mistake about it Matthew and Paul are making it clear that you just don't know but that the seed of righteousness that little mustard seed it's just as aggressive if you facilitate it according to the word of God It'll take over that lump just as quick and just as powerfully and just as manifestly as the seed of sin, as the leaven of sin, if you give it the right context and environment. So we're all the way back to not only who we are in our personality, but where we are so that that seed gets the facilitation in the house of God, the laboratory of the people of God, so that it can become all that it is meant to become. And that, therefore further emphasizes the need and importance of us and our stewardship over one another that we are holy 
and that we are humble and that we are standing and bowing ready to receive the grace of God and to love one another no matter what it cost. What a chapter. What a chapter, right? Right? Then the disciples came, said to him, same thing. Now you think, because we have historical context, that parable of the wheat and the tares, we would have gotten that one. I'm telling you, these disciples, what they do, I'm telling you that this is not uh, them uh, patronizing Jesus. We're, we're going to ask a question to give you an opportunity to answer it, to minister to these people, right? That's not what's going on here. They don't know what in the heck this parable means. So they come and they ask Jesus, what does this parable mean? And then he tells them what the good seed is, and that's the wheat, and the bad seed is, and that's the bad seed and it's sown by the devil and so on and so forth and they're going to no don't mess with them let them grow together and then at the end of the age the angels are going to come and harvest them and they're going to separate the good from the bad and they're going to burn the bad and the good are going to shine like the brightness of the sun and, 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 and they're going to be evident as to what they are so, so he has to explain the parable to him but in his explanation for them and for us, if so be that the seed found good soil in your heart, I must qualify. The point, I think, of his explanation is what I was trying to say to you at the outset, and that is the comfort of sovereignty. The comfort of sovereignty. There is a place and a time, and, and when you see trouble in your family, and when you see trouble in the church, and when you see trouble in the world, and when you see the effects of depravity on you and those around you, and how and, and here we are doing everything we can to keep the environment healthy, healthy so that the wheat can grow, it's still difficult, and we're still we still experience the onslaught of the enemy himself trying to choke us out on a daily basis, and if you've woken up and felt that heavy lead weight sitting on your heart, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The point is, and I don't mean to be trite because I don't think Jesus was being trite, relax, rest. It will all come out in the end as it is supposed to come out. And when it comes out in the end as it is supposed to come out, you will not look around you and experience grief because it did not come out like you expected it to. You will know and you will rejoice and you will exalt the goodness, fairness, justice, equity, mercy, power, and sovereignty and mercy of God because that's who He is. Because that's who He is.